It's hard to believe that we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. So many great conversations over the years about so many great movies. All that said, producing this show week after week requires a ton of work behind the scenes. Becoming a Next Real member gives you access to all sorts of additional and exclusive content. Plus, you're helping us keep the lights on. Just head to thenextreel.com slash membership, where you can learn more about becoming a member, which costs a measly $5 a month, practically the same as one fancy coffee drink. And you get so much more. Every month, we record a bonus episode exclusively for members. Those episodes cover movies from whatever series we're covering at the moment, or add to previous series. Some movies we've covered that only members get to hear us discuss include The Blues Brothers, The Russia House, Naked Lunch, Independence Day, The Hot Rock, and Relic, the better one. Plus, members get to vote on what we're going to discuss for those episodes. We also record additional pre- and post-show content in regular episodes that only members get to hear. Like conversations about similarly themed movies. And answering listener questions from our live member chat. Speaking of our live member chat, we record almost all of our episodes in Discord, where members can chat right along with us live. Members get access to other members-only channels in our Discord community as well. On top of all that, members get all episodes a full week earlier than everyone else in a private Next Reel feed just for them that includes all the shows in the Next Reel family. The Next Reel, the film board, movies we like, sitting in the dark, and more new projects on the way. To top it all off, members don't have to listen to ads. We've already eliminated those annoying, dynamically inserted ads that, let's face it, we all hate it. We are listening to you. We love podcasting for a living, and those ads help to pay the bills. Now, we're counting on you, dear listener. We promise we aren't going back to those terrible, dynamically inserted ads that don't relate to us at all. All we ask is that you consider supporting the Next Real family of podcasts with a membership. Again, it's $5 per month or $55 per year. Just head to thenextreel.com slash membership. Thenextreel.com slash membership. Get your access to early, ad-free episodes with bonus content, member bonus episodes, and access to member channels and live streams in Discord by signing up today. I'm Pete Wright. And I'm Andy Nelson. Welcome to the next reel. When the movie ends... Our conversation begins. Death of a salesman is over. Attention must be paid. Willie Loman never made a lot of money. His name was never in the papers. He's not the finest character that ever was. But he's a human being. And a terrible thing is happening. So attention must be paid. Well, come on, girls. Sit down. We're wasting time. We'll have a big night tonight. Come on, Biff. Gather around. What'll we do? about him. Hey, what are you talking about? Am I the guy who goes... He doesn't world? mean anything to you, is that it? Oh, come on, drummer boy, smile. <laughs> From now on, I'll see that you go right through to the buyers. You know what's funny is 
You have said that so many times. I've heard those words come out of your mouth mm-hmm. so many times. And I have never known that they were from this play, this film, this play. Because again, this was my first time ever seeing any adaptation of this story. And so, yeah, it's just funny. I had no idea. And now I'm putting all those pieces together. You should be putting all those pieces together. I cannot believe I'm so delighted that this is your first time and that I get to to bear witness to this this initial recitation of your experience with the story, let alone this version of the film. And I should say, I had never seen this version of the film because they make it hard to find. <laughs> so That is true. Which yeah. versions have you seen, just so we know? I mean, have you seen it on stage? Oh yes. Have you performed have you played Willie Loman? No. <laughs> No, okay. I have, I have I have yet to be old enough to play Willie Loman. <laughs> High school rarely do you need to actually be old enough. No, uh, that was that was not my high school performance. I did. Uh, I I was up for the role of Happy in a community theater performance, uh, and uh, when I was in college, and so I I also have spent uh, a lot of time with the with the text in in the form of teaching and and such. And so I I, I do I find a really weird affinity for Willie Loman. Like I really I feel like there's there's not a little part of me that is probably going to age into Willie Loman depressingly. Like <laughs> that's that's kind of my great fear. So I spend a lot of time <laughs> thinking about it. And uh so I'm really I'm I'm really interested to see how the first the story hit you and then we can dig into the film. Well, uh, but first off, so you've seen the there's oh, the the, the one that I think is is most famous maybe I, I'm not really sure but the 1985 version with Dustin Hoffman and John Malkovich I always that's the one my head always goes to when I hear about Death of a Salesman yep. it's that version as it should then I know I know there is a version of uh, that Lee J Cobb performed in 1966 but I don't know I think that was I don't know if it was a TV version or if it was done. It was TV. It was TV with Gene Wilder and um, and okay. Lee J. Cobb. Yes, and, uh, it, there was that. There was also the um, the BBC did a TV film uh, on it. That was in, Warren Mitchell, right? Yeah, R- Rod Steiger and uh, Joss Ackland. And the but there was another one that was with the uh, the American another American film in two thousand with Brian Dennehy. And then uh, there was where was the one with um, what's his name uh, where he, there's the movie where we go into his brain through a very tiny oh, closet. New John York. Malkovich. Oh, John Malkovich. Same. Wasn't Malkovich in in one uh, in, in Synecdoche, New York? Uh, I think it was the is, the version that I no no, no the version that I know the most is the one with with Dustin Hoffman and John Malkovich and Stephen yeah. Lang and Charles Durning yeah. and that was 1985 right. and it's Dustin Hoffman's performance between Dustin Hoffman and Brian Dennehy whom Brian Dennehy did it on Broadway for a long time that I sort of have when I think of the character of Willie Loman I think of of Dustin okay but you've seen a number of those versions a number of them yeah. yeah okay yeah so for my first watch of this film uh, and and of this story i found it to be a really interesting portrayal of kind of like this man who really never felt like he has gotten anywhere in his life feels like a failure has made a lot of mistakes and is at this point where everything is kind of falling apart i was i'm I'm curious like how in the play because the way that the the film kind of portrays it, he's kind of going crazy. Like he's kind of lost his mind and uh, he's 
on this downward spiral toward suicide, essentially. It, it does portray him like he's he's uh, tripped a fuse and is kind of really going crazy. And I'm curious if that's in the script or if it really is kind of part of the adaptation of this version that paints him that way. Because, I mean, it was a really interesting portrayal. And Frederick March, I thought, was astonishing in the film. I thought he was just wonderful. I loved Kevin McCarthy. I really enjoyed the story. Like, everything about it worked quite well for me. And so, I mean, it it made me curious to look at some of those other versions. Um, But yeah, I guess that was my question, you know, is as far as adaptations go, is that part of the story? Or was it like emphasized more than it is in later versions um, with this uh, than it was in this one? It's a really interesting question, and and Willie Loman's character is, I, I think, the way the character is is written, and what Arthur Miller is sort of imbuing into this character, is there is a very wide spectrum of performance to get what he was likely thinking about Willie Loman. Now, at the time he was writing this, there we didn't know as much about dementia as we do now, right? Like we didn't we didn't know what those signals were. I found it really interesting that so much of this movie leans heavily into him, like to your word, tripping a fuse, but heavily into him, like losing his faculties that would maybe in later decades have been attributed to dementia, and this on top of the fact that the capitalist sort of norms of work hard, be likable, look good, be successful are failing this guy in his in his sort of gray years. And some adaptations lean heavily into the 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 failings of capitalism in the form uh, as embodied by this failing salesman and don't lean quite so heavily into the the dementia and the delusion and some like this one feel much more heavily oriented toward he's losing his faculties to the point that he's really experiencing time in another way and you know in in other spaces that he is more physically in existing in his flashbacks and i found that a, a really interesting take on this uh, on this story but eventually whether it's dementia or failing his family and his kids and not knowing how to handle the the uncertain future we end up at the graveside right and and i have not yet seen an interpretation of the story that doesn't feel like the graveside is earned either failing whether physiological neurological or capitalist earns the graveside to me or all of the above all of the above, for sure, for sure. And I definitely think that there is a blend of it in here. I mean, I think the way that you describe it is interesting because I think you look at a more, much more recent film like The Father with Anthony Hopkins as he is portraying somebody who is has dementia and is um, and can't put himself into the right place anymore and is you know seeing his daughter as different people, like the way that that film was uh, really kind of put you into his headspace and made that work was astonishing. It was just absolutely excellent film, but we're getting that here with him jumping into these windows very cinematically of time as he is in one place. And then suddenly 
that place becomes this other place from his past and he's you know goes into that space or sometimes he's in one space living both spaces at the same time like when he's in the the restaurant and it's it really does kind of portray that sense of yeah some sort form of dementia or something that is uh, breaking him in a way where he can't piece things together anymore. But at the same time, I think that there is a strong balance of his emotional state as far as how he's feeling, what he's feeling, um, how he feels he's failing, his his career, his family. Like In every way, he kind of feels like he's failing. And I think that weighs so heavily on him that I think it, it carries into those moments um, and just in a way, I suppose you could say it almost exacerbates where that mental state is taking him with those flashbacks. Yeah, right. Exactly. And I think it's really interesting the way the film calls on transitions, right? In some cases, the way the camera is moving, we're moving from set to set, right? And we sort of transition by way of what would be otherwise a stage mechanic. And in some cases, we're doing some much more clever transitions to bring us into the space with Willie inside his head, inside his memory, inside like his his time skipping. And those choices, I think, really help us lean into exactly the point you're making, right? That, you know, that he is, his difficulties addressing his faculty are determining uh, or, or building the case for how we end up seeing him fail in his own head, his his family. And uh, it's, it is a heartbreaking, heartbreaking experience. I mean, one of the big elements, you know, reading up on this this play and the story is how it's it, it very much is a look at the American dream and kind of uh, you know the failings of that as this person who has always strived to to make something of himself never quite does and is at the later point in his career where he's really on the backside where everything is kind of falling apart. You know, he loses his job because he's just too old and he can't really carry it out anymore. They have no place for him at the office, et cetera, et cetera. Aside from like the fact that he's also having these mental breaks and people are acknowledging that he's, he's losing his mind a little bit uh, in the scope of what the play was trying to say about the American dream. Are we feeling like that is, as emphasized with this one like do you feel like that's something that's really brought forward more in later versions i think so and i think that's a that's an important uh note because so much of arthur miller you know his experience over the course of of his writing life was in the experience of portraying poverty struggle working class and the contrasts of the 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 sort of the the connection and the line between the american dream of the 1920s and the american dream of the you know 70s right like he is i i think this this movie and this piece of it is really embodying the American dream in all three characters, Biff, Happy, and Willie. And in some respects, Linda. We can't leave Linda out uh, because she has her own interpretation, right? Her own exposition on the American dream. You know, but watching how the the idea of superficiality is put on the American dream, how the idea of luck is put on success uh, for these kids, and, and how 
ends justify means. We have the discussion of stealing the the balls and and uh, you know Willie's saying, "Oh, he'll probably give you an award for it because you're so ingenious, right?" Like there there are so many pieces in here that say like the American dream is made of things that otherwise we might not be proud of, and later interpretations of the film, I think, lean even more heavily into that capitalist bent that says, you know, you don't get to have everything you want by playing nice, right? By playing kind. It's easier on Willie, the relationships that he has that he once called on as friends and that he thought he could trust in his waning years. Those relationships, I think, become even harder. And that, to me, is a as an interpretation of the American dream. When we have all of the flashbacks where he goes and he says, hey, I just need you to take me off the road, Howard, and he won't take him off the road, and then gets fired, right? Those those relationships, I think, get harder and harder for Willie as, as time and interpretation of this play and and films made off of it persist. I mean, it's definitely an interesting element. And, you know, coming on the heels of World War II, when there was this general sense of rebuilding and, and it seemed like society was looking for more positive storytelling – it this definitely seems like a darker story to tell and coming out as a as a play in 1949 seems pretty dark and i think there's definitely an element of that look at the failings of this system for for somebody like willie and you can see why a producer like stanley kramer would so readily attach himself to the story because this is exactly the sort of story that Kramer was looking at for um, in you know throughout this this period in his uh, producing career and you know I, I think that you know seeing that how the film did I think it speaks to the fact that perhaps society I mean it's always interesting like sometimes I feel like there's a a way that people look at plays and it might be easier to look at a play that is a little more um, digging on American society than a film, which, you know, especially after world war two, it feels like the audience was looking for something a little more uplifting. And then to have this film about like uh, the American dream uh, failing this person, I, I can see why it may not have been as big a hit. Well, and that's that is actually, I think, a really interesting point, because, like, as you say, on the heels of World War II, 1944, the GI Bill is introduced. Now we have like we have what we had was unprecedented unemployment uh, at home. And then ten and a half million able, you know, many able GIs coming back home with education on their minds and free money to get it. It seems kind of weird that Miller would choose to write about a failing of the American dream for this old guy when the American dream, we're just on the doorstep of it for millions of people who are coming home right now trying to make something of their lives at home. And that's where this movie exists, like on the precipice of coming grief. When we see like uh, the you know movies that that deal with the coming home of the soldier and the continued failure of of the uh, American sort of civic mechanism to actually make room for soldiers to come home and find work and and yet like right here as this is coming out we have uh, this story is coming out we we have that weird little bubble of conflict that 
we're failing the people who are the older people are here. We don't know how to deal deal with that. And we're about to make room for the young. And that's kind of where this movie lives. There's definitely an element with that because and, and you can see that so much in in Willie's relationship with his sons, specifically Biff, and how he views Biff, you know, the, the very much was the all-star high school athlete that um, you know, Willie looked up to so much, to the point where, you know, as you already brought up, he kind of dismisses the fact that Biff is skating by in some ways that may or that like might not actually work, and you know. Willie's opinion is like, oh, he'll, how could he, how could your math teacher fail you? You're such a star and all that sort of stuff. And then, of course, the math teacher fails him. And, you know, I think there's a really interesting relationship between how Biff looks up to Willie, how Willie sees Biff, and really the breaking point of that when Biff comes up to to visit Willie in Boston, unannounced, only to find him in that hotel room with uh, this woman that he's having an affair with and breaking that relationship. And uh, really like as much as he wants like to see kind of that, the, the shifting of the American dream for kind of the young people in this case, his sons, there's a lot of conflict introduced with that relationship specifically because of that moment, which really drives their the the antagonism of their relationship and I, that was a really interesting element to introduce because you you want to see Willie supporting his son and it's interesting because before you find out about that affair like that when when you see the flashback and Biff shows up it really feels like there's just this element of a father being hard on his son you know so it's interesting the way that it's portrayed yeah yeah, and then she comes out. Go back, go back, right? Go, she's a buyer, Biff. Don't worry about it. She's a buyer. And that, to me, is, a, I, I think, a really interesting sequence when the discovery of Miss Francis coming out of the, out of the, the back room leads Willie, I think, to, to make some choices about how he treats Biff that may be kind of a throwback to how he would treat a, a much, much younger son, right? Like, here is an infraction that a 10-year-old found me doing that I know is the wrong thing. I could tell this 10-year-old to, to you know, pound sand and trust that he's going to do it. A number of sequences in this movie, you have Willie trying to treat his sons, his adult sons, as children and not able to see them grow into their own agency. And that conflict in the room with Miss Francis is a demonstration of that, though it's just one data point in a long relationship with Biff that he's just not able to get to the other side of. So much of their antagonism, the antagonism that exists between them, is because Willie has not been able to see Biff grow up and let go of who, of who he wants Biff to be. It's interesting how it ends up coming out of Willie also. And I don't know, I never got a sense that he was like just generally like an abusive husband or anything like that. But there was that one scene when he's talking to Biff and he's kind of mentally shifted back to being really positive and excited about whatever it is that Biff is talking about. In this case, I think it's their the plans that he has to go meet with that guy and, and get a job and everything. And as they're talking, Linda interrupts a few times, and she's not really interrupting. She's just kind of saying something. But every single time, Willie snaps at her, shut up, woman, you know, let him talk and, and stuff like that. And and it's interesting because there is this 
interesting triangle relationship between the three of them. Biff is angry at Willie for talking to his mom that way. She's just trying to be supportive. And Willie is excited about his son, but can't stop snapping at Linda every time she opens her mouth. That was one of those moments where I'm like, I, I, I never really got that sense with him, but it was an interesting an interesting element to include with Willie's character. Is that something that's there's more of in other adaptations or in the play itself? Well, again, other adaptations deal with, with the relationship between Willie and Linda in different ways. And I think that's another thing that you see shifting depending on the era and what kind of point they want to make, right? That in, in spite of Linda sort of playing the traditional role more here, where she's just this loyal and dutiful wife, right? She's supporting her husband unconditionally, right? Absurdly unconditionally. Um, she still caters to him. She takes care of the household. She believes that her duty is to be there for him, even at the expense of the relationship between Willie and his sons, right? She always chooses Willie over or she over Happy and, and Biff, even as she's trying to push them towards him. She's also, you know, even in this version, she's super intelligent. She runs the finances, right? She's the one who is most aware of Willie's mental state and his declining uh, faculties. She's the one who knows he's suicidal she, long before anybody else knows about it. Uh, she has insight that every one of the other male characters in the play lack, right? In that respect, she is kind of the consummate feminist in this in this movie as crappily as willie treats her as poorly as her sons may speak back to her she's the one who has the most sort of awareness and agency and i think that makes her character interesting now how is she handled in in different adaptations i think that this is one of the roles that depends so deeply on who is playing the character right who what the what the the specific actress wants to bring out of that character and make make them much more powerful than than maybe Miller intended. Don't know. I don't know because the words are on the page, right? The words are on the page. I know there are several instances in the in this movie in particular where Linda's monologues have been cut short or cut out, right? There's one in particular where she's calling her sons at this restaurant, right? That right after Willie is so excited that the boys invited the, him to this restaurant, right? And she in the play, she picks up the phone and calls I think it's Biff. And she has this conversation and saying, you know, don't let your father down, that kind of a thing, right? And then they immediately go in the next scene and let the father down. <laughs> like, just really, they're bad at this. They're bad at this. But I, I do think that this movie, this adaptation in particular, leverages a lot more power in Linda and her agency and awareness, particularly for the era. I'm, that's the thing that surprised me maybe most as a, I'm a legit fan of portrayals of Linda Lohman. I think it's a, it's a really interesting character to be in the middle of so much um, sexism and, and, and struggle in a weird time that this thing was made. And it surprises me that a movie in 19, in early 1950s would give Linda so much yeah, uh, as, as they did here. Well, she was a fantastic uh, element of this story really interesting in her full support of her husband acknowledging where he was and acknowledging how fragile he was while at the same time telling her sons look either you are going to be coming here to visit both of us or you're not coming back at all because it's yeah. not just me you can have a relationship with you need to also have a relationship with your father because i love him 
and we are together. And like, there was a lot of strength in her performance, and I found her to be uh, a, a wonderful kind of a center point for this story and for kind of a little bit of uh, grounding with kind of all of the craziness going on in so many directions uh, with the other characters. She actually expresses regret, even in some cases subtextually, at what she might have achieved had she not been in this family, right? Like if she hadn't devoted her life as a, uh, to this role as a housewife, that leans into that sort of feminist dissatisfaction with uh, with traditional roles, societal expectations, and I think, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think she's, I think she's just terrific. Yeah, that is Mildred Dunnick, and she's somebody. I'm like, I don't know uh, what else I've seen her in, but then I'm like, oh, she was in Peyton Place, she was in The Trouble with Harry, so uh, you know, all the way up to The Pickup Artist uh, with Robert uh, Downey Jr. and um, Molly Ringwald which is funny, like, you know, a, a very long career with a lot of, a lot of interesting things. So very much a face. And, and I saw her recently also in the spiral staircase. So she's some, she's somebody who is very much a face doing a lot of interesting films. And I think this is an interesting version. Interestingly also ended up being Linda in the 1966 TV movie with Lee J. Cobb. Hmm. Well, somebody saw something. Well, yeah, it's interesting because I guess with this version, they pulled a number of the performers from Broadway to come over to be a part of this. I think they didn't end up having Lee J. Cobb come over from Broadway, Broadway and, and put Frederick March in instead because people were concerned about Cobb's uh, apparently leftist communist opinions at the time and so didn't want him involved. And then Kevin McCarthy actually came over from the London cast. But otherwise, uh, I think it's interesting that they grabbed a lot from Broadway. So to that end, I'm guessing that the 1966 version, they were trying to even more firmly recreate the the Broadway version. Yeah, yeah. This series is specifically the cinematography. Uh, we haven't really talked about this series, but we're looking at the 1952 Academy Awards nominees for Best Cinematography, Black and White. We have this, The Frogmen, which will be a funny, an interesting one to look at because I think neither of us had heard of that before. A Place in the Sun, Strangers on a Train, and uh, A Streetcar Named Desire. The cinematography here was Franz Planer. I have seen work of his like letters letter from an unknown woman breakfast at tiffany's so certainly a cinematographer who knows how to do the work i have to say watching this film i can easily see why this ended up getting nominated for this category granted it's a real shame because the the version of this that we have access to right now is a youtube version i found like three different versions of it on youtube but they're all the same copy it was just garbage it was muddy ugly print they are apparently um uh, stanley kramer's daughter uh commissioned for his they had a big hundredth birthday celebration for him in 2013 and and commissioned along with like the uh film uh, preservation and martin scorsese a 4k restoration frame by frame of this film which was screened at that uh that celebration and the plans were to uh, put it out for release and it has not happened so that's 10 years they've been sitting on a restored version 
of this film. And as far as I could tell, it is not accessible anywhere, which is really frustrating because I can tell that this is a gorgeous film to look at. It's just, (laughs) you have to look at it through the mud in order to see it. Um, But all that aside, I mean, what did you think of the cinematography? Yeah, I thought it was YouTube lovely, right? To your <laughs> your exact point, it was muddy, but you can see what it was what he was going for, and I think that that gets back to my earlier comment about just using the camera in line with some, you know, complicated staging to make those flashbacks work, right? That's where this stuff really shines. Uh, that's where the the camera work really shines to me. A- apart from the fact that it is luscious black and white. I have to imagine, you know, once we see how that camera moves, interacts with different staged elements to do those incredible transitions, I I think that's what makes it special. I I love it. I I think it's fantastic. And I I think you're right about planar, you know, I mean, just looking at the the films that planar wasn't, you know, uh, nominated for Academy Awards for right champion, death of a salesman, Roman holiday, nun story and children's hour. I'll take a little Gregory Peck, uh, smart Gregory Peck cinematography any day. Even stuff like 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, The 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T, some really fun family films that he also shot. And just clearly it's a filmmaker or a cinematographer who knows how to capture uh, strong images. And then I think that goes with also how uh, Laszlo Benedict, our director, chose to actually shoot this. And we've already talked about those transitions of like the way that the camera would move from one place to another. One of my favorites was in the restaurant as we're on Biff, and then the camera kind of swings over to the side of Biff following Willie's kind of uh, view as he looks into the shadows and he sees a whole scene play out in the shadows and we zoom in on it and everything. We can tell we're still in the restaurant, though, because there's still a lamp from the restaurant in the corner. And, you know, filmmaking wise, we can tell especially in through today's eyes, oh, there's probably a screen back there. They played this on a screen. And then we pan right back over to to Biff sitting at the table still. And so we're we're doing a lot of that really interesting style that that Benedict infused in this. And I was really thrilled by how actively directed this was. And I suppose you could say there's an element of that that comes from the way that you could do this on on the stage. But I just found it to be incredibly cinematic, and I was thrilled by the way that Benedict chose to put this together. I think a lot of the transitions that deal with his aspirations to go into the jungle and come out again, you know, a rich man, a lot of those kind of flashbacks are so sort of heady, but we get when he's chasing when he's chasing him down in the subway and following the shadow on the wall, walking in front of him, wait, 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 wait. That is so smart. So visually smart and such a beautiful cue. Uh, It's one of those, I just had to stop and watch again because it's, uh, you know, being able to come back around and see that there there's really the person there was fantastic. Yeah. All of the stuff in the subway was great. Like when he, uh, like toward the end of that, when he comes out of it and he's, um, he's talking to Ben and you have all of those lights flashing by as a subway car passes. And then it, it, we, we come back over to Willie and, and as he's been following and talking to Ben and then suddenly, and the lights are still passing, but then suddenly other people are also passing and we realize, Oh, we're back in reality now like it was just such interesting shifts in those moments throughout the film i i just it was 
exciting to see Benedict doing this. And I'm very, like, this is the only um, Laszlo Benedict film I have seen. The only other one that I've actually really know of um, is uh, The Wild One, which is perhaps the one that um, he is most famous for with Marlon Brando. Um, but, it, you know, not a big filmography, but from watching this, I was pretty excited. And I'm curious if uh, much else that Benedict has done has really kind of um, stood out, made made a mark, you know? Yeah, for sure. We've talked a little bit about Happy and Biff and Linda and Willie. We haven't really talked about, about Ben specifically. And I think Ben is an interesting character. And since you were just talking about that transition, we should probably dig a little bit into Ben's role, especially because we talked about the American dream and Ben's kind of the manifestation of the America of Willie's view of the American dream. We, we would be remiss if we didn't bring that up. It's a really interesting role. And I think that largely speaks to kind of the place where he's going mentally, you know, this brother of his who had all these great ideas, who was a success, who was, I, I would suppose that, through today's eyes, you would say very entrepreneurial, always looking at any opportunity and finding ways to turn it into a big money moneymaker. And it speaks to an interesting way that Willie viewed all of that. Like he was thrilled by what Ben did, but clearly never took up any of those opportunities that Ben presented to him. And, and you know, I think that speaks to perhaps part of the failing of, of Willie, the fact that he was excited by these ideas, but was too afraid to ever act on any of them and wanted to stay in the safe lane, you know, and, and kind of play it safe and it never, and it worked. And I suppose that's part of what um, Miller is actually saying about uh, this system that we're in is that if you're playing it safe, you're not ever really going to be able to, to get anywhere. But yeah, I mean, Ben is an interesting character and I, I don't know. I, I, enjoyed the way that he flowed in and out of the story is is this a pretty standard way of depicting this brother well it's interesting because ben in death of a salesman i think you can compare him to old ben kenobi in star wars but only after he's a force ghost because <laughs> uh <laughs> No, that seems like going to be a weird tie-in. Like, <laughs> no other characters besides Willie ever interact with Ben, right? Like, no one else sees or talks to Ben. We never have any... It's always this, like, uh, he's always the idol, idolized older brother that is gone, that may have had success, but we don't know. And in fact, I think some adaptations lean in on the fact that the last thing Willie has heard from Ben is that he was going off to find success in the far reaches of everywhere. And Willie then completed the, the, the fantasy in his own head and speaks to this old Ben <laughs> Loman, uh, character, Force Ghost, and, uh, uses that as motivation to further idolize the American dream that is possible by a guy who never uh, objectively never achieved it in the play right and i think that's the most interesting thing like does uh, you know i believe that ben as a as a human existed but we never see the ben that would be there right we as an audience it's just the headcanon ben i think that's an interesting way to look at at ben as a function of Willie's delusion and further like exacerbating his fall into uncertainty. Don't you think? 
I mean, does that make any sense? No, it makes a lot of sense. I think that's a really interesting way of looking at this brother. And because I mean, he had died is what we we heard, right? It doesn't somebody say he's dead? I I'm trying to remember now if if they actually say that or not. Uh, did they say it in the movie? That's what I'm trying to remember because I felt like my headcanon was he had died and he hadn't been around. Linda does just, say Ben is dead. I mean, that's part of of Linda's speech, but that was one of the that's one of the interesting things. I wonder if they if part of Linda's speech was cut. Yeah, I can't uh, remember because I just was left at the end of the movie with uncertainty. Um, right, but she does. She yeah, but because all that 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 I don't know. There's this huge. I should probably search my digital copy of the script here because there's this whole speech about the diamonds and the value of diamonds and the dead. Ben is dead. Well, regardless, I, I do think that there's an interesting element of him kind of being the broken part of Willie's head about like the focus on success and like that that drive to always go searching for something that's always intangible. It's always out of reach. He's never quite able to get it, but there's always the excitement about it, you know, and I think that was an interesting element of of where he is. So powerful. I mean, so just is filled with just this sense of <laughs> weakness and emptiness that he's building his entire life around a, an imagine, uh, imaginary friend. Right. I mean, and just, you know, I, I'm just thrilled with the cast here. Frederick March, I already said, was so good. We just talked about him recently in uh, The Best Years of Our Lives. And, uh, you know, we had talked about him previously in uh, Merrily We Go to Hell. Kevin McCarthy, I can't remember if we've really had a chance to talk about him much at all, but we will later in this season as we uh, talk about Inner Space, because he ended up in a, that film, which is so much fun. And he is an actor who I just love. Um, but seeing him so young here and and just kind of so exciting in this role, I was, I was just thrilled to see Kevin McCarthy in something I'm so – like my brain – has him so focused on science fiction sorts of films. Um, you know, I, I think probably because of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, that's where my brain goes with early Kevin McCarthy. And I feel like from there forward, it just is always like these science fiction films and projects, even though I know he's done countless other things. But I just, I, my headcanon for him is just sci-fi. So it was just fun seeing him doing something like this, which I, he was so good as Biff. Just loved him in the role. And such extraordinary teeth. Wow, yes. yes. I mean, prominent feature. That guy's <laughs> got a smile. I, I think you're right. And I think it's really showcased in that sequence where he, he you know, uncovers his dad's promiscuity. And, and uh, um, that is, that's a, that's a real high point, but his entire arc, I, I never once questioned. And I think it's a hard thing to do to bounce in and out of this relationship with a, with a, the, uh, you know, with your dad that is at once challenged and at once really quite lovely, right? Like trying to find that happy medium is, is a, is a performative dance. And I think he does a great job. Yeah, absolutely. Cameron Mitchell, I don't think, has as much to work with in Happy. Yeah. Like the the role of Happy is is you know it, Happy's not a change character. <laughs> you know, this no, thing. Yeah. Uh, but but still is a lot to bounce off of. Like there is this energetic balance between the two brothers, especially as the the amplifier of enthusiasm around going and doing this new thing, starting a new business together, and and I really love the energy between the two of them. 
regardless of their relationship with Biff. Yeah, absolutely. Alex North did the score. I really enjoyed the music with this version too. I, this I just I'm I'm so surprised looking at this version of the story and how hard it is to find because I'm like this was like a solid film. Why has this not had uh, more conversation around it? Why does it not um, reach more people? It's just it's very surprising because I just walked away from this really uh, thrilled with it in all aspects. I'm I'm really interested. I can't wait for you to watch some other versions of this thing. And I hope you're interested enough in the story to do it because I think there's a lot to, there, there's a lot of like meat in these characters to give you a, essentially a different interpretation, a different story with, with every, you know, thing. And, and this has become such a quintessential role for actors, right. To get a part in death of a salesman, to play Willie Loman, to play Biff, to like, that's, that's a, that's a real get. Uh, to do it and do it well and become sort of known for it. And um, right. Yeah. yeah. I, I love the the play. So this was an easy watch and, and um, you know, who knows, maybe we need to, f- we need to fill in a member bonus series with more deaths of a salesman. <laughs> well, I mean, where, how does this, this is a good question for somebody who has seen a number of versions. Like how does this stack up to um, like the 85 version and other versions that you've seen? Well, it's so different. And, and I think the, um, uh, I, I think the one that I'm that is still my favorite is the Hoffman Malkovich, just because that I mean Malkovich is is amazing. He's just amazing. I think that's the that's the one I stand by. But I was deeply surprised by just how much they got out of this in 1951. And it and this in in many respects, I think you could call it the purest adaptation of the play because it was made in such proximity to the play being staged, still being active. And I I think that makes this one sort of the I don't know the canonical truth of of what the you know the Miller story was as the thing has sort of shifted and evolved in other adaptations since so this is it's really good it's not my favorite but it's really i mean it's god it's right up there and i'm with you i cannot believe this doesn't doesn't get more doesn't get more tread yeah crazy i guess miller was a little upset with this uh translation actually uh i apparently largely it's a very close transcription of the play according to what wikipedia has to say but there were a few lines of dialogue that were cut and some key scenes were truncated. And Miller says just those little changes uh, ruined it because those were key elements. And so that's kind of an interesting, uh, just an interesting uh, look. And, you know, I suppose that's always going to be the case of adaptations. Yeah. Well, and here's it. This is an interesting thing, right? Because I know one of those, like when you start cutting those lines uh, and you start changing the nature of the character's portrayal. And I think I, I mentioned earlier that the um, the portrayal of Willie here is, leans much further into the dementia than in the failings of capitalism. And I can totally see how Miller would would think that's that may be too opinionated because every subsequent play leans further or adaptation of the film i think leans further toward the failing of of willie as as an expression of failure of america yeah and not failure of a health system to recognize that there's a neurological disorder (laughs) right right interestingly the studio was really nervous with how this film was going to be received uh thinking that it was going to be viewed by 
society is too anti-American and it wasn't going to draw in a crowd. And so they actually commissioned a short film called Career of a Salesman uh, to play before the film as attempt to kind of get past all of that. Miller was furious that they chose to do that. And, you know, his quote, why the hell did you make the picture if you're so ashamed of it? Why should anybody not get up and walk out of the theater if death of a salesman is so outmoded and pointless? He was very upset. The studio um, ended up, I guess you could say, embarrassed and pulled the short. But apparently, because of this whole debacle that happened, that kind of led to the fact that people ended up viewing this film as a depiction of American failure and it kind of bombing at the box office. Yeah, that's interesting. I can, I can see it. I can see it. All right. Well, that's it. So we'll be right back. But first, our credits. The Next Reel is a production of True Story FM, engineering by Andy Nelson. Music by Mark Yancheski, Oriel Novella, and Eli Catlin. Andy usually finds all the stats for the awards and numbers at v-numbers.com, boxofficemojo.com, imdb.com, and wikipedia.org. Find the show at truestory.fm, and if your podcast app allows ratings and reviews, please consider doing that for our show. Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of Movie Conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. All right. Sequels and remakes. Man, I feel like we've talked about a lot of them. We have uh, sequels, no, but certainly other versions of this. The play has uh, been on Broadway, I think, how many total times now? Um, five times. Uh, five revivals on Broadway. So it's it's had a lot of runs aside from all over the place. Uh, 
Film-wise, though, this was the first version of this. Then there was a Soviet version directed in 1960, a Swedish version in 61, a German version in 68, the CBS version in 66 with Lee J. Cobb, um, along with a BBC version that same year uh, with Rod Steiger. There was a 79 Swedish version and the 85 one that you've talked about so much with Dustin Hoffman and John Malkovich, 96 with Warren Mitchell, 2000 with Brian Dennehy, 2008, it was featured in Synecdoche, New York, and then there was a radio drama in 2015, and then the only time I've seen any hint of this was the Iranian film The Salesman in 2016, the Ashgar Farhadi film. Yeah, so it certainly makes its way to the screen a lot of times. As you said, a lot of filmmakers, a lot of actors want to kind of check this off of their resume. It's one of those things that I think people enjoy getting a chance to be a part of. So how did it do at award season? Obviously, we're talking about this for the cinematography, but this film have teeth elsewhere? It was very popular with the critics, even if it wasn't with the audiences. It had seven wins with 11 other nominations. At the Oscars, Frederick March was nominated for Best Actor, but lost to Humphrey Bogart in The African Queen, something we've talked about on the show. Where do you stand with that? Well, having never seen this version I and now seeing it, I don't feel like I've changed my opinion on on uh, any of the other wins. I I think uh you think Bogey Queen is is so good. Yeah, I mean I just feel like Bogey gets it. Just Frederick March was really great in this and it's so different from what we've seen yeah. in those other films of his that we've talked about. So Are you, so are you lobbying for us to go back and uh, you know, I, I need to rewatch The African Queen in closer proximity to this, but I, I can see why he'd get nominated. There's a part part of me that might say, you know, I, I think I'd side with Frederick March, but um, I'm not quite there yet. I just need to watch The African Queen again. Yeah. Um, Kevin McCarthy was nominated for Supporting Actor, but lost to Carl Malden in A Streetcar Named Desire, which we'll be talking about later in this series. Mildred Dunnock was nominated for Best Supporting Actress, but lost to Kim Hunter, also in A Streetcar Named Desire. Uh, why we're here, the best cinematography, black and white uh, nomination, but lost to A Place in the Sun, which we'll be talking about in a couple weeks. And last but not least, Alex North was nominated for best music, scoring of dramatic or comedy picture, but lost to A Place in the Sun. So, yeah, we're going to be talking about, um, by the time we're done with this series, we will have talked about all of those other nominations. So that's <laughs> exciting. All right. So we should withhold judgment until yes. all, final judgment. Exactly. On all open questions. Exactly. Okay. At the BAFTAs, it was nominated for Best Film from Any Source, but lost to The Sound Barrier. And this is one that I imagine uh, it changes with time as far as, was this the right choice to go with? Best Foreign Actor, Frederick March was nominated, but lost to Marlon Brando in Viva Zapata. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, at the WGA uh, Awards, it was nominated for Best Written American Drama, but lost to a place in the sun. It was also nominated for the Robert Meltzer Award, which is a screenplay dealing with most ably with problems of the American scene, but lost to the film Bright Victory. And at the DGA Awards, it was nominated for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Motion Pictures, but lost to George Stevens for A Place in the Sun. Okay, so I guess that means we have to turn our attention to the meticulous detail of which you apply to the budget. This was another tough one. I could find nothing 
referencing how much Kramer and Benedict had to actually make this adaptation. I did find that it released December 20th, 1951. It shows that it earned 1.2 million in US rentals, which is 14 million in today's dollars. You know, rentals, sometimes it'll say rentals. It's not always the same as the box office gross. Uh, it, still, it's all I have to go with. I did find this article referencing the 2013 restoration, which did say it was considered a box office flop at the time. Unfortunately, that's all that I have. Well, I still like you a lot. <laughs> I'm glad that my budget failings on this film yeah. did not change that. This, this, this series might be a point of weakness for you, but you're still a good person. Phew. All right. Well, I'm sure glad we talked about this. As I've said countless yeah. times, this has been a fantastic run. I'm glad you have been introduced to it. Finally. Finally. The deaths of the salesman. Yes, indeed. Well, we'll be right back for our ratings. But first, here's the trailer for next week's movie of this series, Lloyd Bacon's The Frogman. From top secret records filmed with the cooperation of the Department of Defense comes the thrilling story of these pin-footed, goggle-eyed, beach-blasting heroes. They fight like men from another world, but they've got Brooklyn, Texas, and Missouri written all over their hearts. You're a brave man, all of you are. You wouldn't be in this outfit. Nobody questions that. But your kind of bravery comes ten cents a dozen and isn't worth a hoot more when the chips are down. And the chips were down on that deal. What's up? We've been hit by a torpedo. Port side after. Take it easy, kid. We'll get you out of here. Know anything about torpedoes, sir? A little... Had a few days of this stuff during training. They called it the Kingdom Come type. Looks to me like you've got a rough decision to make. So the big question is, do we take the chance the firing pin will stay put under the ship's vibration or do we try and remove it, huh? But I think we ought to take a chance on removing the exploder mechanism. The odds are too big against assuming that fish isn't armed. Okay, I'm scared too. Collision! Hard side aft! You have never seen anything like this adventure. Midnight submarine rendezvous with frogmen. The pickup line under fire. Underwater demolition. Below enemy territory. Fight to the finish where men never fought before. It is hard to believe we've been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. You're telling me producing this show week after week is so much fun, but it does require a lot of work behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. The Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals links to the source material for all of our adapted film discussions. Purchasing through our links supports the show. In Season 13, we explore various awards categories and the films nominated in them. We wrapped up our 1940 Best Picture series with adaptations of Mice and Men from John Steinbeck and Wuthering Heights from Emily Bronte's novel, not to mention the play Dark Victory by George Brewer Jr. and Bertram Block. The 1947 Academy Award adapted screenplay series featured Anna and the King of Science 
I am, based on Margaret Langdon's book, plus The Best Years of Our Lives, Brief Encounter, and The Killers. The 1952 cinematography nominees included Death of a Salesman and A Streetcar Named Desire, A Place in the Sun, based on both a play and a book, and Strangers on a Train, based on Patricia Highsmith's first novel. So many great movies based on books and plays, like Beckett, The Pumpkin Eater, A Boy and His Dog, Rollerball, The Princess Bride, Congo, The Scarlet Letter, Jackie Brown, The Deep End, The Gray, The Woman in Black, and Top Gun Maverick, which I'm very much looking forward to revisiting. Get the source books at thenextreel.com slash originals. Start your next read or reread from the movies we've covered. Visit thenextreel.com slash originals today. Have you watched it? No. I've watched the trailer. Okay. I have not watched it either. Just wondered how ahead you were of me. <laughs> a lot of watching to do. Uh, Letterboxd, Andy. Uh, we should talk about Letterboxd and what you're going to do, how many hearts you are going to steal from other movies to apply to the death of the salesman. Will it be enough to resuscitate Willie from the grave? <laughs> I don't know what could resuscitate him from the grave. Uh, it's a tough one for me, and especially like having never seen other versions of this, not knowing the play at all, just walking into this going, this is this story. I found it to be really strong. I love the characters. I, it was an easy, engrossing watch. I'm going to say four stars for now. Yeah, we'll see how, if that changes, how that changes with other viewings and other iterations of the story. You know, I'm right with you, and I think my hunch is you'll find another version of this story to give a five star to. Hmm. Like I have. Yeah, I'm guessing the 1985 one is the <laughs> one that you're talking about. Well, you can find yeah. me over at Letterboxd at Soda Creek Film. You can find Pete at Pete Wright. So, what did you think about Death of a Salesman? We would love to hear your thoughts. Hop into the Show Talk channel over in our Discord community where we are going to be talking about it this week. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Letterboxd give it, Andrew. As Letterboxd always do it. I went way, way, way down. Ooh. And it's, a, it's not even, there's there's not a lot of substance, but I think it's just, it it, it captures how what the bottom of the barrel looks like. Interesting. Interesting. So, do it. I'll just do it. I'm looking forward to yours. Let me just get this out of the way. This is a one star from Shreya, who says, <laughs> ruined my life. Willie is so effing dumb. I can't lie. The American dream had him on strings, and I don't feel any pathos for him. Worst tragic hero ever. I think I could use the exact same review, but make it five star. <laughs> uh, I love that. I love how <laughs> words work that it's way. It's amazing. Yeah. Yep. All right. What do you got? Four stars. Bring it in hot. I have a four star by Jackson who says, a streetcar named Desire wishes there is nothing that streetcar does that death of a salesman doesn't do better. Ooh, streetcar though. <laughs> <laughs> I that makes me uh, all the more excited to revisit that in yep. this series. It's very much me too. Oh my goodness! Thanks, Letterboxd. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms, but in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. 
and it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content, and we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15-plus years, Transistor has been, hands down, the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.